Hello everyone and welcome to the September 12th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A gender discrimination class action lawsuit has just been filed in California against Amazon, which alleges its fulfillment centers are illegally tailored for men, making it difficult for women to reach items on an eight-foot automated pod. The lead plaintiff in this case is Amy Fujishi, a woman who is six feet high and who worked for Amazon at its fulfillment center in Sacramento as a picker and counter. She alleges she began to run into issues regarding her productivity score almost immediately after being hired by Amazon. Amazon's Fulfillment Center utilizes these pods, which are movable stacks of shelves that are eight feet high, with bins of various sizes that are brought to and from workstations by automated robots to store items that are picked for shipping when orders come in. Since she was only five foot tall, she was not able to pick and scan items at the top of each pod without assistance from a process assistant or violating the safety policy against overreaching for items over her head. But she had to meet the strict productivity score standards and stay out of the bottom 5% of productivity scores to keep her job. So she would often try to grab high items without using the stepladder in order to keep the amount of time spent retrieving an item at minimum she would be reprimanded by a learning ambassador or people from the safety department for overreaching when she was caught doing so. In her lawsuit, she alleges that these pods in Amazon fulfillment centers discriminate against female employees by inflicting significant adverse impacts upon women when compared to Amazon's male employees assigned to the same tasks. Her attorneys allege that on average, adult men are significantly taller than adult women. And because of this difference, Amazon, she says, unnecessarily places female employees at a significant disadvantage compared to male employees, in effect punishing them for their generally shorter stature. And the safety policies and Amazon's quality and productivity performance policies are seemingly tailored to the height and strength of the male physique rather than the female physique. Amazon sets targets for productivity each day and ranks warehouse employees by their productivity score on a weekly basis, which takes into consideration the number of units handled by workers. Employees who need to use the step ladders or wait for the assistance of process assistance more often, allegedly will take more time to complete a task, lowering the units per hour, or UPH, and increasing their time off task, or TOT. This allegedly confers an advantage to taller people over shorter people in achieving higher productivity scores. The lead plaintiff, who stands five feet tall, was disciplined and eventually terminated for her low productivity scores. The suit concludes by claiming the practice is in violation of FIHA because Amazon's policies subjected them 
to different and adverse employment actions as a result of their sex. And now our crime report. Johnny Depp's attorney has been hired to defend a high-profile workers' compensation fraud case. California attorney uh, Vasquez became a household name last June while successfully defending Johnny Depp in his defamation trial against his former wife, Amber Heard. She is now signed on to represent Yellowstone actress Corianca Kilcher in her California workers' compensation fraud case. Ms. Vasquez confirmed the news on Wednesday, saying she was determined to defend Kilcher, who ironically plays attorney Angela Blue Thunder on the hit Paramount streaming series. Attorney Vasquez will take on the case alongside attorney Steve Cook, another partner in her firm, Brown Rudnick. Brown Rudnick is an international law firm with roots in post-war 1940s Boston and New York City. Camille Vasquez joined Brown Rudnick's Orange County office back in 2018 as an associate in the litigation and arbitration practice. She has more than 10 years of experience as a trial lawyer in high-stakes disputes, including defamation cases, contract disputes, business-related torts, and employment-related claims. She was a key member of the litigation team that won the jury verdict on June 1, 2022 for actor Johnny Depp. On June 7th, her firm announced that she had been elevated to partner in the firm. Her co-counsel, Steve Cook, heads the firm's White Collar Defense Investigations and Compliance Practice Group. He is a former federal prosecutor and experienced trial lawyer who advises corporate and individual clients on complex civil and criminal matters, internal corporate investigations, grand jury investigations, and regulatory compliance matters. He was also a member of the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, responsible for investigating and prosecuting threats of terrorist activity and terror financing networks. The litigation pair say they are determined to defend Ms. Kilcher in this important case, which they say examines the inherent flaws in the disability compensation system. And they added that Ms. Kilcher is a well-respected and pioneering actress in Hollywood, and they intend to clear her name. Kilcher was last seen in the season three finale of Yellowstone back in 2020, with her character mysteriously absent from the fourth season, which aired earlier this year. However, according to some media reports, the starlet will return in the fifth season of the mega-hit, which is set to premiere November 13th. Ms. Kilcher lives in North Hollywood and has been charged with two felony counts of workers' comp fraud. According to the report published by the California Department of Insurance, Kelcher allegedly injured her neck and right shoulder in October 2018 while acting in the movie Dora and the Lost City of Gold. She saw a doctor a few times that year but stopped treatment and did not respond to further insurance company handling of her claim. But a year later, Kelcher contacted the carrier claiming she needed treatment. She told the doctor handling her claim that she had been offered work since her injury occurred but had not been but had been unable to accept it because her neck pain was 
too severe. However, an investigation discovered that she had worked as an actress on the television show Yellowstone, despite her statements to the doctor that she had been unable to work for a year. It remains to be seen if this worker's compensation criminal case will have the media attention and intrigue of the recently concluded Johnny Depp case. A federal jury convicted the president of a Silicon Valley-based medical technology company of participating in a scheme to mislead investors, commit health care fraud, and pay illegal kickbacks to marketers when he submitted over $77 million in false and fraudulent claims for COVID and allergy, allergy testing. The defendant is 59-year-old Mark Sheena, who lives in Los Altos, California. He was the president of Arrayet Corporation in the Bay Area. The jury heard evidence that he engaged in a scheme to defraud the company investors by claiming that he invented revolutionary technology to test for virtually any disease using only a few drops of blood. The evidence at trial showed that Mr. Shana concealed that the company Arrayet was on the verge of bankruptcy when he boasted instead of high profit profitability. He also orchestrated an illegal kickback and healthcare fraud scheme that involves submitting fraudulent claims to Medicare and private insurance for unnecessary allergy testing. Arrayet ran allergy screening tests on every patient for 120 different allergens, regardless of medical necessity, and he paid kickbacks to marketers in violation of the Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act and orchestrated a deceptive marketing plan that falsely claimed that the Arrayet test was highly accurate in diagnosing allergies when it was not in fact a diagnostic test. Arrayet billed more per patient to Medicare for blood-based allergy testing than any other laboratory in the United States and billed some commercial insurers over $10,000 per test. But his allergy testing business declined because of the COVID-19 pandemic and stay-at-home orders reduced demand for allergy testing. So, he falsely announced that Arrayet had a test for COVID-19 based on Arrayet's blood testing technology before developing such a test. And then he orchestrated a deceptive marketing scheme that falsely claimed that Dr. Anthony Fauci and other prominent government officials had mandated testing for COVID-19 and allergies at the same time and required that patients receiving the Arrayet COVID-19 test be also tested for allergies. He falsely claimed that the Arrayet COVID-19 test was more accurate than a PCR test for diagnosing COVID-19 infections, while concealing that the FDA had informed him that the Arrayet test was not accurate enough to receive an emergency use authorization. He's scheduled to be sentenced on January 30, 2023, and he faces the potential of decades of imprisonment. And in regulatory news, Gavin Newsom signed the Fast Food Standards and Accountability Recovery Act, which was Assembly Bill 257 on Labor Day, 
giving the state's 550,000 fast food workers a seat at the table and bargaining power with their employer. Newsom said the new law gives hardworking fast food workers a stronger voice and a seat at the table to set fair wages and critical health and safety standards across the industry. The legislature made a finding during the legislative process that the fast food sector has been rife with abuse, low pay, few benefits, and minimal job security, with California workers subject to high rates of employment violations including wage theft, sexual harassment, and discrimination, as well as heightened health and safety risks. So the legislature went on to establish its remedy with this new law that will establish the Fast Food Council within the Department of Industrial Relations. It will be composed of 10 members to be appointed by the governor, the Speaker of the Assembly, and the Senate Rules Committee, and they would prescribe its powers. The code defines a fast food chain, which is subject to the law to mean a set of restaurants consisting of 100 or more establishments nationally that share a common brand or that are characterized by standardized options for decor, marketing, packaging, products, and services. The purpose of the council is to establish sector-wide minimum standards on wages, working hours, and other working conditions related to the health, safety, and welfare of fast food restaurant workers. If a conflict exists between council standards, rules, or regulations and those issued by another state agency, the standards, rules, or regulations issued by the council would apply to fast food restaurant workers and fast food restaurant franchisees and franchisors, and the conflicting rules or regulations of other state agencies would not have force or effect with respect to these parties. Standards within the jurisdiction of the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board, which is Cal-OSHA, would be exempt from this exception. The law received widespread support from labor unions and worker advocacy organizations, and it was opposed by franchise owners, fast food companies, and the California Restaurant Association. The president of McDonald's posted an open letter which opposed the law, and claimed that economists say it would drive up the cost of eating at a fast food restaurant by 20%. And in medical news, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that the suicide rate for men in construction industry was five times greater than the rate of all other work-related fatalities in the industry back in 2018 and construction workers are four times more likely to end their own lives than people in the general population. To assist workers in an industry with one of the nation's highest occupational suicide rates, the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration has joined a task force of construction industry partners, unions, and educators to raise awareness of the work stresses seen as the causes of depression and thoughts and acts of suicide amongst construction workers. The task force encourages industry employers to share 
and discuss available resources with, other, with their workers. OSHA says that construction workers cope with unique causes of stress, such as uncertain seasonal work, remote work and job travel that keeps them away from home and support systems, long, hard days and completion schedules, and the job-related risks of serious industry. Left unchecked, these stressors can affect mental health severely and lead to anxiety, depression, substance abuse, and in some cases, suicide. And researchers found the coronavirus outbreak and pandemic only worsened the problem. In August 2020, the CDC reported a considerable one-year increase in symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder in a survey of the U.S. population. So in 2020, a group of industry volunteers joined to launch the first Suicide Prevention Week for construction workers. Back in 2021, more than 68,000 workers in 43 states registered to participate in the Construction Suicide Prevention Week, managed by a task force comprised of OSHA, Associated General Contractors, the Builders Association, leading construction companies, and labor unions. And this September marked the second Construction Suicide Prevention Week. The Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention is raising awareness about the risk of suicide within the construction industry by providing suicide prevention resources and tools to work toward a zero-suicide industry. They've created online training in collaboration with Living Works. To register and start the training, visit PreventionConstructionSuicide.com. That's all one word, PreventConstructionSuicide.com. State Compensation Insurance Fund has reduced the number of opioid prescriptions for the injured workers they serve by 82% since 2014. And over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, between 2020 and 2021, State Fund's opioid reduction program resulted in a 14% decrease in the number of opioid prescriptions for injured workers, despite increasing levels of opioid use and overdose fatalities across the nation. State Fund's opioid reduction program is built around a comprehensive strategy to motivate physicians to avoid or reduce prescribing opioids to injured workers and to educate injured workers about the risks of using opioids to manage pain. The program focuses on three key areas, including early prevention and intervention in new cases, relapse and delayed recovery response programs, and reduction of chronic opioid usage in existing cases. The program also includes peer-to-peer physician reviews, education for injured workers and treating physicians, and support for patients who are struggling to stop opioid use. From 2014 to 2021, state funds saw a nearly 80% decrease in the number of claimants on any opioid prescription and a 4.6% decrease from 2020 to 2021. The number of patients taking high doses of opioids 
for more than three months has decreased by 91% from 2014 to 2021 and decreased by 11% from 2020 to 2021. The Food and Drug Administration recently granted marketing authorization for an anterior, anterior cruciate ligament implant intended to serve as an alternative to ACL reconstruction to treat ACL tears. The FDA granted the marketing authorization to the company Miyok Orthopedics Incorporated. The device is known as the Bridge Enhanced ACL Repair or bare implant, and it is unlike traditional reconstruction since it does not require the use of harvested tendons for ACL repair. And bare is the only currently available alternative to reconstruction with allograft, autograft, or suture-only repair for the treatment of ACL rupture. And the San Diego Union-Tribune reports that Jenna Richardson of Oceanside was the first in the area to choose bear over reconstruction after tearing her ACL while mountain biking. She is a medical sales representative, rep representative and she said she liked the idea of avoiding the ligament harvesting process, which requires an additional incision and increases the amount of rehabilitation necessary after surgery. She also shied away from replacement with tissue from a deceased organ donor after several friends who went that route experienced additional tears. And Dr. Tim Wang, an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist at Scripps Clinic who performed her procedure this August, making Richardson the first patient in San Diego County to undergo bear repair. Her surgeon said that the early data and research shows that the new procedure is as good as the current standard of care with a potential for faster muscle recovery. The ACL is a ligament stretching from the front to the back of the knee. It aids in keeping the knee stable. Despite being a very common injury until today, the only surgical treatment available for torn ACLs has been ACL reconstruction using allograft, autograft, or suture-only repair. The bare implant is a resorbable implant, meaning it is absorbed by the body, and it's made from bovine collagen, and is secured by way of a suture to bridge the gap between the torn ends of the patient's ACL. The patient's own blood is injected into the implant during the surgical implantation procedure with the intent of forming a device-protected clot that enables the body's healing process. After about eight weeks, the bare implant surgical procedure, it is absorbed and replaced by the body's own tissue. The bare implant is indicated for skeletally mature patients at least 14 years of age with a complete rupture of the ACL is confirmed by MRI. Patients must have an ACL stump attached to the tibia to construct the repair. And in other industry news, musculoskeletal disorders, or MSDs, are the most common workplace injury, impacting both employee well-being and business 
efficiencies, and the world's top employers are taking action. Since launching the MSD pledge three months ago in collaboration with Amazon, the National Safety Council proudly reported that more than 100 leading organizations have made a commitment to create safer outcomes for millions of workers worldwide by reducing MSDs by 25% by 2025. The MSD pledge was developed by the Council's MSD Solutions Lab, a groundbreaking initiative established in 2021 with a mission to prevent MSDs by engaging key stakeholders, conducting research, and sharing innovative solutions to benefit all workplaces and workers. This month, more than 100 MSD pledge members represent upwards of 2.6 million employees across every major global continent. By signing the pledge, these organizations commit to analyze the causes of MSD injuries and invest in solutions and practices that reduce risks to workers, to leverage innovations and share learning that improves safety practices, to build a culture of safety where everyone at every level is accountable for the safety and health of workers, to collectively reduce MSD risk and subsequent injuries across the pledge community by 25% by 2025. The Vice President of Worldwide Workplace Health and Safety at Amazon said she is grateful for the opportunity to work with so many companies to address this important issue. At Amazon, she says they are focused on continuous improvement and they know they can learn from all the other organizations that have now signed this pledge. And Boeing's Environmental Health and Safety Vice President said that fostering a culture of safety requires a continuous commitment to taking proactive, collaborative action on the industry's most complex safety challenges, which is precisely what the MSD Pledge represents. The MSD Pledge is one of several initiatives launched this year by the MSD MSD Solutions Lab to prevent workplace MSDs worldwide including its advisory council, experts in safety, health, ergonomics, and innovation, by engaging in researching, solving, and amplifying MSD prevention efforts, and comprehensive research efforts to explore current and future MSD prevention-related strategies that will be available to all industries. The lab will host its inaugural Safety Innovation Challenge at the 2022 NSC Safety Congress and Expo, where cutting-edge technology solutions focused on risk prevention and elimination of workplace MSDs will be showcased. To learn more about the MSD Pledge, the MSD Solutions Lab, and the risks associated with MSDs, please visit the National Safety Council's website. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device 
by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.